The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When ISAF stopped and, and transitioned to, to resolute support in Afghanistan and civilian harm mitigation really was taken away and all of those tactical directives migrated away, we saw a number of really large civilian casualty incidents and the numbers started to get higher and higher. And not only that, they stopped doing on-the-ground investigations. They stopped interviewing victims and witnesses. Uh, whenever NGOs or others would provide reports to DOD, they would say to us, well, that's not a credible report. And that led to a lot of problems. This plan, if implemented, is going to solve a lot of that. I mean, just for example, they have in there the new more likely than not standard. So let's say an NGO provides information on a civilian harm incident. Instead of just saying, well, it's just an NGO, you know, it's not a credible source. Now they're going to say, okay, it's more likely than not civilian harm happened there. So let's make sure that we investigate it. You know, that is a huge change, and I'm really heartened by it, and I honestly and truly believe that it will have a a very positive effect if the plan is implemented. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th, 2022. On August 25th, the Defense Department released its long-awaited Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan, something that human rights advocates have called on the Pentagon to do for the past 20 years. Former Lawfare Associate Editor Tia Sewell sat down with Todd Huntley, the former JAG and current director of the National Security Law Program at Georgetown University Law Center, as well as Mark Garlasco, a former targeting professional and war crimes investigator who consulted on the plan. Tia discussed Todd and Mark's respective Lawfare articles on the topic and how this new action plan improves the Pentagon's handling of civilian harm in war or not. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th. Todd Huntley and Mark Garlasco on the Pentagon's new CivCash action plan. So I want to start off this podcast by asking each of you to just provide a bit of backstory on your careers and your specific exposure to civilian casualties in war. Todd, we'll start with you and Mark, if you can hop in after. Sure. Great. Thanks a lot, Tia. I'm really uh, happy and excited to be on here with you and with Mark, especially to continue this conversation Yeah, I served in the Navy as a JAG for about 23 and a half years. Uh, About the last half or so uh, was spent doing, I guess, what you'd call national security law, uh, most of it supporting special operations forces. And so uh, when I was assigned to U.S. SOCOM headquarters in Tampa, I had an opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan in 2006 and support the special operations task force uh, that was operating there at the time. I was... I was the only JAG, the only lawyer there on the ground with the task force. We had a Navy SEAL uh, captain as the uh, commanding officer of the task force. And we also had a, a Air Force One star who was there representing the uh, the larger task force that was at that time forward deployed uh, in Iraq. And so 
during that uh, deployment, essentially my main task was to to set in the Joint Operations Center, the JOC, during operations to advise the commander on you know legal and policy issues related to the operations. A large portion of which were airstrikes that were then followed up by special operations, you know, raids into an area. And so while I was there, we had one incident uh, down in Panjway that resulted in some allegations of of civilian casualties. And uh, I went down as part of an investigative team to to look into that. And so that was really my first uh, exposure to both advising on airstrikes and operations and also the issue of civilian casualties. So after the investigation, we were also involved with uh, trying to come up with some sort of response plan. We're compensating and trying to um, make the situation right for the uh, victims and family members of the victims there. In 2013, I deployed to Afghanistan again. By this time, the forward, the main task force had deployed to Afghanistan. We were out of Iraq and um, I was basically doing the same thing, but there were a team of several warriors doing it by that time. In between there, I was also the uh, legal advisor for Special Operations Central Command, and um, we had an incident, or not an incident, well, we were, you know, had several civilian casualty incidents uh, while I was there, and while not directly involved, I was overseeing the investigations and reviewing the reports, and we actually tried to collect the information on all of the civilian casualty incidents uh, in this, uh, you know, Special Operations Central Command area of operations. And uh, I think, you know, maybe we can talk about it later, but just the difficulty in doing that. And I was surprised that we weren't doing it already, even then in 2009, 2010. Yeah, absolutely. Handing it over to you, Mark, can you tell us a bit about your own background? Sure. Well, I started off uh, as a civilian intelligence officer at Defense Intelligence Agency over in D.C., working in the Pentagon on uh, on the joint staff, uh, basically working on high value targeting. Uh, which is going after leadership, uh, leadership targeting. And I worked on um, a number of operations, including Allied Force in, in uh, Yugoslavia, Desert Fox in Iraq. And then I was chief of high value targeting in 2002-2003 uh, for Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was really interesting. My, my first uh, exposure to civilian casualties was actually during Allied Force when I was over in Kosovo on a bomb damage assessment mission where, you know, uh, you go in and you're, you're looking at a site with your clipboard and trying to understand, did the, did the weapon strike the target? Uh, did it function correctly? Did we use the, the correct weapon? Did the, the function of the, of the facility or whatever it is cease because of our targeting? And I turned to my boss and said, okay, so where do I put the info on CivCAS? And he said, well, well, we don't, we don't collect that. And I thought that was kind of crazy uh, and really kind of led into a lot of, uh, a lot of different things uh, that happened in my career. So I worked uh, Iraqi Freedom uh, where I was basically trying to, uh, to track, locate, track, and then uh, kill Saddam Hussein uh, as one of the targeting cells. Uh, I was the DIA targeting cell in the Pentagon. We also had one at uh, CIA, NSA, and CENTCOM Forward. And as soon as uh, Iraqi Freedom, uh, the the main combat operations finished, I actually left. I went to Human Rights Watch and I conducted an on-the-ground assessment of the civilian casualties uh, from that conflict for HRW. Then I went to the United Nations 
And I basically have spent my career as a war crime investigator and working on protection of civilians issues, looking specifically at conduct of hostilities by all parties of the conflict, but focusing largely on U.S., NATO, et cetera. Uh, so, for example, I was in Afghanistan, uh, in uh, Libya, in uh, Syria, doing doing this kind of work for the, for, for the United Nations. And interestingly, I was actually over in Afghanistan when it was NATO that put together this idea of civilian harm mitigation and created this movement to try to find ways to uh, minimize civilian harm through a variety of different protocols that they put into effect. And I was at UN headquarters in Kabul across the street from ISAF headquarters, ISAF being the International Security Assistance Force, which was the, the NATO mission there. And I would go every day across the street uh, over to ISAF uh, and sit in at that point uh, was with uh, General Petraeus. And, you know, there were a number of others. Uh, I had been there also in 2008 when, when the policies were first being put together and really saw firsthand how civilian harm mitigation blossomed and grew and really led to significant changes. Uh, for example, from uh, 2008, which was the height of civilian casualties uh, in Afghanistan, uh, to that point, you know, we we're talking about a little bit over uh, 500 civilian deaths. Uh, it was 552 civilian deaths from airstrikes in 2008. But by 2010, because of civilian harm mitigation, they were able to get those numbers down to 171. So we saw over a 60% decrease. And so it was really heartening for me. And now uh, my work has been largely trying to push for the civilian harm mitigation policies by the Pentagon and, and changes to what has really been just 20 years of failed policy regarding civilian uh, casualties. And that's basically my, my career in a nutshell. Amazing. So on August 25th, the Pentagon released what it's calling the Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan, which provides 11 objectives related to this overall mission to kind of overhaul the U.S. military's consideration of civilian harm on the battlefield. So I want to get into those, but before we do, could one of you provide a bit of background on where this report initially came from, who ordered it, and why? Sure. So the uh, actual plan started out as what's called a DOTI. That's a Department of Defense instruction, which is actually a policy. So that's that's a, a Pentagon policy. And up until now, there has never been a uniform policy for the U.S. military for how to treat civilian harm or deal with civilian casualties. Uh, up till now, it's really been up to the COCOMs, which are the combatant commands. Uh, so you look at the regional ones, such as, for example, AFRICOM or Central Command, or the ones like SOCOM, uh, you know, where Todd worked. And you, it was really up to those commands, right? So CENTCOM would do it one way, AFRICOM would do it another way, SOCOM had their, had their methodology, but there was never any uniformity to it. So after just years of problematic instances of civilian harm, numerous, uh, you know, honestly, thousands of civilians being killed in the last 20 years, Congress decided to step in. And in the National Defense Authorization Act of, tw of 2019, uh, there was a requirement put in for uh, civilian casualty reporting, and that moved forward. But then it was actually the fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, which required the DOTI, you know, this policy. And the policy kind of went through the Pentagon and was being staffed up and eventually fell on the desk of Colin Call, who is the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy. And he, you know, it, it was supposedly on his desk and was, was, was getting ready to come out. 
And that's when it was a year ago, there was the airstrike in Kabul and 10 civilians were killed. And it came out that it was not a righteous strike as the Pentagon originally told us all. And there was really this movement. Well, well, part of it was those of us in the NGO community, like myself, calling for the Pentagon to release the Dodi immediately, uh, because clearly there was a need for a policy change. And, you know, we questioned, had this policy been in effect, would this family have been killed in, in Kabul? And so please put this out as quickly as possible. But the word that we got back from the Pentagon was that, well, I, you know, we think we're going to go back to the Dodi and, and rework it. You know, maybe it doesn't address all of the issues that, that it needs to address. And so this began really an iterative process that on January 27th of, uh, of this year, the SecDef put out a memo saying that, okay, we're going to come out with the Dodi, but it's going to be informed by what's going to be called the CHIMRAP, the Civilian Harm Mitigation Response, uh, Response Action Plan. And they would create it. They created a, a tiger team, uh, and they worked for ninety days, which is an incredible turnaround. I have to give them amazing credit for this. So they worked on the the plan, which was then released uh, last week, and, and it's the plan we're speaking about. But it's just a plan, and it starts the clock now for the Dodi, uh, which will be released within the next ninety days, and that's actually going to establish the policy that puts this plan into the cement of the Pentagon and, and creates it. Right. So now, Mark, you wrote that this plan is a signal that the Pentagon is finally prioritizing civilians in conflict um, on lawfare. So if you will, can you walk us through the plan itself? What does it do and what are its most important components in actually creating the systemic change that it seems it was intended to foster? Okay, so... It's, it's a, a really ambitious, comprehensive, phased plan uh, that's supposed to be phased over years up until uh, fiscal year 2025. Uh, it's an 11-point plan, so, so there's a lot of points to this. Uh, but I, I want to note that there is an uh, umbrella group of NGOs called Interaction. And within it, you have groups like my own, which is PACS. Uh, you have civilians in conflict, you have uh, Human Rights Watch, Air Wars, Amnesty, and others. And we, we all gathered together. And, and with, with great thanks to those on the CHIMRAP in the Pentagon, they brought us into the Pentagon during the 90 days multiple times. Uh, we also did Zoom uh, meetings with them so that we could speak through what we thought the DOTI needed to have and what this action plan needed to have. And we provided them with a reference guide of, you know, here are our top line require our top line asks the recommendations for the plan. And I got to say, this plan reflects every single one of those requests and more. Uh, so just to very quickly give you the wave top issues of the 11 points, uh, point one is leadership. And that's talking about having a senior leader to take ownership, but also to have the leaders in the military constantly emphasize the need uh, for protective policies. The second point is a center of excellence, which is the creation of a protection of civilian center of excellence that will serve as the one-stop shop for uh, civilian harm issues. The third point is putting this into doctrine uh, because nothing happens in the military unless it's in doctrine because that's your requirement to actually do it. Point four is embedding civilian harm mitigation into the actual joint targeting process. So the idea that you know you, you receive intelligence, uh, you develop the target, you then prosecute the target. And within that 
joint targeting process. Now, there are going to be several important steps to protect civilians. Point five is red teaming, uh, which is basically putting a, a red team into the targeting process, which are people who will challenge uh, some of the assumptions uh, that the targeting personnel may have. Uh, so, for example, in the strike in Afghanistan in Kabul last year, one of the, the things that they used as evidence to target the, the family was that someone was moving things out of the trunk. And I think a red team would very clearly say, well, you know, in a city in any day, there's a lot of people moving things in and out of their trunk. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's high explosives. Section six is standardizing data management, which is a hugely important thing. Uh, you know, I, I remember back when I was working uh, at the UN headquarters in Afghanistan, I would go across the street every day to ISAF with a, a spreadsheet with all of our civilian harm incidents and sit down with, uh, with ISAF with their data management system. It worked very well, but DOD's really doesn't have a standardized data management system and that will, this will do that. Uh, section seven is investigations. And that is a massive reform in investigations. And it's just an incredible change to what's gone on in the past. And I'm happy to go deeper into that. Section eight is amends. Uh, and amends is both a, is, is basically a response to a civilian harm incident, uh, apologies, and then perhaps economic or other appropriate uh, responses to those who have been injured in a lawful uh, strike. Uh, and then section nine is security cooperation. Uh, so for example, you know, if the U.S. has a security cooperation agreement with a country, we, we send weapons or whatnot, uh, that there are going to be civilian harm uh, requirements within that, the scope of that agreement. Section 10, we're almost at the end. Section 10 is multinational operations. So we're talking about NATO, uh, non-NATO allies like Australia, for example, and putting in that there are going to be requirements for our allies when we work together, that they also have similar civilian harm policies that we do. And then finally, Section 11 is staffing, and it directly speaks to creating 166 positions within the Department of Defense to deal with civilian harm mitigation. It is a lot. And Todd, bringing us back to your article quickly, you had referenced that joint paper that I believe Mark was talking about Part of this uh, interesting dynamic between DOD cooperating so fully with the NGO and civil society space to put forth this plan is really impressive. So including Mark's organization PACS, a group of NGOs had submitted this joint paper back in July in anticipation of the Pentagon's plan. Would you agree that the recommendations set out by the NGOs were met in the report itself? And with that, how did you react when you saw the plan for the first time? Yes, I I think that the NGOs' recommendations were certainly all considered, and it looks like they were all put into the plan, which is you know, fantastic, because I think that was the one thing that I saw develop over time was the growth and strengthening of those relationships between the NGO and, and uh, DOD, uh, especially forward. It wasn't always the case. A lot of it was personality-dependent. But if you had the right people, and a lot of times that was through the JAGs that, that I saw anyway, um, reaching out and taking information from these NGOs who, frankly, you know, had access to much better on-the-ground info than, than DOD did. My reaction when I saw uh, the, the plan for the first time or the, uh, yeah, the plan was uh, I was really surprised at the detail they put into 
commenting on the resourcing that's going to be required to put this into action. You know, I think, as I mentioned before, a lot of the objectives really came from or, you know, built on the uh, NGO recommendations. But, the you know, obviously, is this, you know, is DOD really serious about this? You know, to, to determine that you need to see, you know, what resources they put behind it. And by commenting, I think, up front in this plan, they're indicating that they're going to be serious and they're going to dedicate the resources that it's going to take. Yeah. So as we talk about resourcing specifically, one component of the plan that's gathered a lot of attention has been the Civilian Protection Center of Excellence. As I understand it, this would be a center explicitly focused on and concerned with minimizing and responding to civilian harm. So, Mark, do we know what this will look like in practice yet? Uh, For example, maybe how it'll be staffed or funded and kind of the, the specific things that it will be responsible for doing? Yeah, so the, there are a few things about the Center of Excellence that we do know, but there are still many questions. And I, I do need to highlight that while I'm in complete agreement with Todd that this is an incredibly comprehensive plan uh, with a number of important details in it, uh, such as you know the staffing and whatnot, there are a number of areas within the plan where it kind of reads, and then magic happens. You know, so it doesn't specifically state how things are going to happen. So, you know, for example, we're going to create this center of excellence, which is the one-stop shop, but where is it going to be? We, we, you know, we, we don't have an idea. We don't know where it's going to be housed. Now, the civilian harm work itself will be placed, will be housed within the secretary of the army's office. Uh, But where physically this center of excellence will be, we don't yet know. We don't know specifically the staffing of the Center of Excellence itself. Uh, while we do have specific numbers on staffing for uh, the joint billets, the uh, the different uh, combatant command billets, et cetera, uh, the U.S. intelligence community billets, we have all of that. We don't really know for the Center of Excellence. That said, I do want to highlight, though, that the Center of Excellence is not simply an academic institution. You know, Centers of Excellence are places where various experts come together, talk about problems, and really drill down to specific issues that need to be dealt with. That is true to some extent with this center of excellence, but it also has an operational side to it. I find that really interesting. The idea is that the center of excellence is going to create a number of of military experts on civilian harm uh, that will be on a list so that if there is a need to surge personnel to a COCOM, for example, during a time of ongoing hostilities, that you can have already trained and ready people sent out there uh, to immediately work on civilian harm issues. So I think they really thought through quite a bit as far as the way the center is going to move forward in supporting the operational commands, in helping to create standard operating procedures, force development, doctrine, and also do that research and analysis. But there are still a number of questions, like I said, you know, where is it going to be and, and who's going to be in it? You know, as Mark had mentioned before, uh, before this, you know, any type of action that was taken, the policy was really run out of the combatant commands. And as we know, doctrine and training of those personnel who later go on to fill those positions in the combatant commands, that's the, that's the responsibility of the services. And so I think there was kind of a disconnect between, you know, the organization that was given the responsibility for doing the doctrine and training and those that were actually on the ground doing the operations and tasked with collecting information and reacting to CivCAS incidents. 
I think that's perhaps a place where this center of excellence can really make a difference is, is bridging that gap and trying to overcome what we used to call silos of excellence so that you have people, you know, who are assisting in running the doctrine that actually have the experience and also then are put back out there in the field when they're needed. Right. So to follow up on that, is this something that will help make the protection of civilians a commander's priority? That's something that you talk about as being really a critical component of any um, comprehensive civilian protection strategy in your piece, Todd. I think it, it's a part of it. it it'll, it'll help it, but it isn't the only thing. I think, you know, the plan here has a pretty ambitious, I think, a schedule for implementing all of the uh, details of it. But I think that that part, right, making this a commander's uh, responsibility, really ingraining it into how commanders think through plans and operations is going to take time. It's going to have to be integrated in a wide range of different trainings, I believe, in you know, education starting perhaps as early as, you know, at the military academies or, or um, you know, ROTC, and then continually reinforced. So it, it's going to contribute to it, um, but I think we're going to have to do more to really see it truly become, you know, a, a one of the commander's objectives. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, 
they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I'm curious, Mark, would you consider the creation of the Center of Excellence to be a radical shift in the U.S. military's posture towards civilian casualties? Um, or put another way, do you think that something like this center and other parts of the plan would have significantly changed or impacted the way that you've worked in this space within your professional history? This is undoubtedly a revolutionary change in the way that the U.S. military is going to deal with civilian harm issues. As long as this is embedded, resourced, and staffed properly, if they can get this plan to be activated, then this will save lives. Now, it doesn't mean that civilians are no longer going to be dying in America's wars. And that's still going to happen. You know, when you solve your problems with high explosives, uh, people are going to die. Uh, but fewer will die because of it. And I think that we have specific examples of how that's true in the past. You know, when you look at how the gold standard of the civilian casualty mitigation teams at ISAF in Afghanistan operated, 
and how they were able to reduce civilian harm by, you know, 60% from airstrikes, 20% across the board in Afghanistan. And then once those civilian harm policies were removed by the Trump administration, and those casualties then not only went through the roof, but were the highest ever recorded in the history of Afghanistan. So for example, in 2019, there were 700 civilians killed by, by U.S. airstrikes, as documented by UNAMA, which is the, the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan. So it shows that civilian harm mitigation can work. If we look at this plan, it is a complete sea change in how the U.S. has done its work. Like, I mean, let, let's just look, for example, at investigations, okay? Just one, one simple part of it. In the past, in Afghanistan, uh, up until 2014, there was always an on-the-ground investigation in large incidents. Uh, there was a, a shop of about a dozen people that looked specifically only at civilian harm issues within uh, the Afghan context. Uh, you had uh, lessons learned go and uh, get sent out to the combatants in the field through a variety of tactical directives that changed how operations were conducted and improved civilian protection while allowing for military operations. You know, I mean, this is this is lawful military conduct, and we're not trying to say you're, you're, you can't do that, but to take the proper care to, to ensure that we, we're not unduly uh, harming civilians. I mean, let's just compare that and contrast it to the way that the Russians are fighting in, in Ukraine right now. You know, the Russians are directly targeting civilians. Uh, we're seeing massive civilian casualties across the board because they do not have any civilian harm policies, right? This for the US is going to be a massive change. And when we lost that, when ISAF stopped and, and transitioned to, to resolute support in Afghanistan and civilian harm mitigation really was taken away and all of those tactical directives migrated away, we saw a number of really large civilian casualty incidents and the numbers started to get higher and higher. And not only that, they stopped doing on-the-ground investigations they stopped interviewing victims and witnesses. Uh, whenever NGOs or others would provide reports to DOD, they would say to us, well, that's not a credible report. And that led to a lot of problems. This plan, if implemented, is going to solve a lot of that. I mean, just for example, they have in there the new more likely than not standard. So let's say an NGO provides information on a civilian harm incident. Instead of just saying, well, it's just an NGO, you know, it's not a credible source. Now they're going to say, okay, it's more likely than not civilian harm happened there. So let's make sure that we investigate it. You know, that is a huge change and I'm really heartened by it. And I honestly and truly believe that it will have a, a very positive effect if the plan is implemented. Todd, you had briefly mentioned earlier in this podcast, the difficulties of efforts to mitigate collateral damage and in, in investigations after the fact. Do you want to expand on that here? What are some of the main challenges that the U.S. military would face in implementing the changes that this plan outlines? Sure. There are a couple. The first one is just having access to the areas where the strikes took place and where the harm was inflicted. And, uh, you know, in my example, uh, in Afghanistan in 2006, when we, the area we went to in the south of Kandahar, it was a very uh, active area for the Taliban. We didn't have many forces in there. In fact, it was really um, in the uh, Canadian sector, if you will. Uh, and so when we went out to this village, uh, me and another uh, U.S. military officer, we went with a platoon of Canadian infantry who provided security for us. And you know, they, they were surprised that we were going there uh, to, to actually do this investigation. And so 
you know, what we had is, as Mark said, when we were doing, you know, in-person on the ground investigations in Iraq, you know, those were a time when we had semi-control of the ground space that we could send in forces to do those investigations. That wasn't the case in Syria, certainly over the course of the last few years. And I think, you know, we may get to it later, right? Some of the complaints uh, from some sectors saying that this isn't going to be practical in kind of a large-scale peer-on-peer conflict, we may not have that same level of access. And so that's a challenge, but it's a challenge, I think, that makes the recommendation of taking information and working with NGOs that have better access even more important. Uh, The other challenge was actually coming up with some sort of compensation or mitigation plan that was effective and that wouldn't create additional problems. Again, when the incident that I was involved in in 2006, we were trying to figure out how to compensate um, the family members uh, and victims for losses. There were some buildings that were destroyed. There were some some farm equipment that was destroyed, livestock, and then also obviously um, some uh, death and injury. And, you know, we were afraid that pumping in a large amount of money uh, into this very small village that was in an em- enemy-controlled area would make those individuals uh, basically open them up to being victimized by the Taliban, you know, coming in and taking those resources. And so we worked with USAID to try to compensate them in kind to actually replace some of the equipment, the livestock, and then have some way to transfer funds uh, that would be more secure than just you know what we had done in the past, showing up with a bag full of money. I, I strongly appreciate what Tom just said, and that's an important perspective. And the plan notes that not in every instance is a monetary or monetary funds going to be appropriate. You know, there are other appropriate means. And I really appreciate him bringing that up because it's very much an important point. You know, numerous times people will say, oh, well, you know, these folks are just lying. They're saying that they were harmed just so they can get money. But, you know, in, in, in my 20 years of experience, that's really not the case. Civilians most often just want to be recognized. Uh, they want people to understand what has happened to them and to admit to it to apologize and and to allow them to move on with their lives. But if we can help them, then we should. Absolutely. One thing I want to move into, recent reporting on civilian casualties has highlighted that mistakes often happen during dynamic strikes, which are where the military will identify a sh- and strike a target in a shorter period of time, sometimes just minutes or hours, um, in addition to self defense strikes, which are dynamic and constrained by targeting processes that tend to be less strict. So by my understanding, the plan doesn't explicitly discuss points of actions pertaining specifically to the elevated risk of these types of scenarios. But I guess, Todd, I want to ask you this first. Do you think that implicitly we could expect error rates in dynamic situations of self-defense to be mitigated by the measures that the plan sets out? Yes, and I think um, both Objective 3, you know, basically, you know, updating doctrine to reflect CAS mitigation plans, and then also uh, putting civilian harm mitigation into the joint targeting process, that doesn't distinguish, you know, neither of those recommendations distinguish uh, between dynamic and deliberate targeting or self-defense. So the way I read that was that it's going to be put into doctrine and the targeting process that's going to be applicable to both types of strikes. 
Yeah, if I could just chime in on that. So, you know, one of the interesting things about when you look at what actually causes civilian casualties in the field, a lot of people think that the main cause of civilian casualties are those casualties that are incidental to lawful combat. So for example, you've got a home, people are living in the home, they're hiding, there's a tank outside the home, someone engages that tank and the bomb explodes and people inside the home die because they're they're close and they're incidental to, to the actual attack. That's actually not the main cause of civilian casualties in conflict. The, the main issue really is misidentification. Much like we saw in the Kabul strike, uh, when that aid worker was misidentified as a terrorist and you know bomb mastermind, and so the plan speaks specifically about misidentification, uh, working with red teaming to try to get to that issue of misidentification, uh, going through the actual targeting cycle to improve the issues of of that that lead to misidentification and make sure that we don't have those biases anymore. Uh, but yeah, one of the criticisms of the plan is that there are not those extreme details. Uh, so for example, uh, the differentiation between dynamic and deliberate strikes, but also, you know, they only had 90 days. Uh, I think they've given us a, a really good roadmap uh, that can be followed and we can work through the details in the future. I definitely think that the issue of dynamic versus deliberate strikes is something that needs to be looked at. But if we can start to get into some of those nitty gritty areas like misidentification, you know, had that been in place, it's possible that that family in Kabul would still be alive today. I'd like to uh, kind of add to what Mark just said, um, because I think the recommendation um, and the goal of trying to, you know, consider the information that's brought in by these non-governmental organizations is going to be important in this area of, you know, trying to reduce misidentification because it has been, I think that's been a, you know, one area where there has been some tension between the military and the NGOs with, you know, NGOs, you know, coming and saying that, you know, the U.S. missed some, uh, some critical, uh, evidence or information that had they known about it, they would have realized these were civilians. The military pushes back and says, well, the NGOs don't have access to all the intelligence that we have that shows that this individual was actually a legitimate target. And so, you know, this sharing of information, hopefully going both ways, will reduce, I guess, maybe some of those disagreements, because I think uh, I think both sides had a point there that, you know, there were certainly targets where there had been some allegation of civilian casualties where the intel showed that maybe this individual was a legitimate target. And something something there that I think is really interesting that I want to get both of your takes on is this idea, right, that there has been disagreement between the U.S. military's evaluation of civilian harm in the aftermath of an airstrike and civil societies, either from reporting or from NGOs being on the ground. And so I guess... Do you think that that public discourse, kind of like this brand new discussion that we've had, particularly over the past 10 years, criticizing these strikes has been really instrumental in pushing this change forward and putting pressure on the Pentagon to actually put this plan out? You know, from my perspective, it's been really central to the discussion of why this plan is out. Uh, when I started uh, my career in the Pentagon, uh, and then left for Human Rights Watch, there was just an incredible amount of uh, distrust and and really enmity 
uh, between the human rights community, NGOs, and the military. Over the past 20 years, there's certainly been a, a, a movement uh, to work together, uh, work together more. Um, maybe we don't agree on everything and you know we're not going to always uh, say, hey, you know exactly what you're doing, but we can, we can come together and try to find common, you know, points of commonality. It, it's, I think that's an important thing to, to remember. And it's not just the NGOs, though, but it's also press reporting has been critical to this. So I look at uh, Asman Zara's uh, reporting in the New York Times, for example, on uh, civilian casualties and airstrikes. And, uh, you know, she did a huge data dump of Freedom of Information Act reporting uh, that specifically showed incidents where more could have been done to protect civilians. And, and that was also one of the, the kind of straws on that, that, that helped break the camel's back as we, as Secretary, Secretary Austin moved from this idea of the DOTI to creating a chimrap, creating a plan, really reworking the plan and bringing people in to make sure that all of the different issues from the NGOs, from the press, from the military were, were, were handled. I think it's really important to understand that the plan will not handcuff the military. I think part of the pushback from some uh, some of the arguments against the plan are saying, well, you're just putting more requirements on the military. You're just handcuffing them. Uh, you're trying to make sure that they, they can't conduct their operations. That's not the case. This plan is going to give them tactic techniques and procedures within the joint targeting process and other areas of, of, of uh, military operations that they work on that will ensure that they take all feasible precautions to ensure that civilians are not unduly harmed in conflict by U.S. military actions. Yeah, no, I agree that uh, the press reporting especially has been critical, I think, in, in actually making this happen and providing the, uh, the impetus for the, uh, for the plan coming out. Just uh, one other comment about, you know, Mark's comments about whether this is going to handcuff the military. That is still a very much of a live debate. In fact, after uh, y'all had uh, published my article online, I received a couple of comments from folks who are still in the business, if you will, uh, expressing that concern that, hey, you know, you're not doing this anymore. You don't know what you're talking about. This is really not going to be feasible if we're in that kind of, you know, major ground conflict, peer on peer conflict that uh, we tend to, tend to be, you know, kind of focusing on now. Well, you know, it's a really interesting perspective there, Todd, because, and, and that's something that, that I've looked at. So uh, last year, PAX, my organization, uh, and we work very closely with NATO, uh, we went in and wargamed with NATO uh, Article 5 combat, tank heavy in Europe, major combat operations, you know, pure level. And as we gamed it, you know, we saw within that, that in that framework that when they were operating, particularly in urban areas uh, and civilian harm instances were occurring, that had detrimental effects on operations and it bogged them down. It led to a lot of problems when they implemented civilian harm mitigation practices. Then it started to grease the wheels and they, they no longer had as many civilian harm incidents and, and it, it helped them in their operations. And while I fully appreciate, you know, people being skeptical, uh, particularly those that are right now conducting operations and, and are not looking forward to having more requirements uh, levied on them. The reality here is that this is something that that we, we need to do. Uh, it's not only an operational imperative because you're not going to continue to create more enemies for, by, by, by killing people's families, 
but it's also a moral imperative. And and Secretary Austin noted that, and it's in the top line of the of the Chimrap. So while I appreciate that that people are skeptical about the plan, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more positive about it and and, and hopeful. Now, Mark, I I agree with you, and I think you know in in the plan it talks about collecting more information on and making sure commanders are aware of. I think they refer to it as the civilian environment. And I think, you know, in an area, you know, the example, again, of a major war in Europe, a commander having more information on the area where he or she is operating is only a good thing, right? We should want our commanders to have all the information possible on that environment, including where the civilians are. And so, you know, Thinking about this now, before we're in that situation, I think is critical and will go a long way to, you know, hopefully developing those TTPs, as you mentioned, to to help us take into consideration the civilians that are in that area while still being able to accomplish the, uh, you know, the military objectives. I want to follow up on this point briefly, which is this kind of notion of the fact that the nature of war could be changing in the future and thus maybe not necessarily on the note, on the criticism of handcuffing the military. But Todd, have people voiced concerns specifically that as the U.S. military moves further down this line of really integrating protection of civilians as a priority, as it should, as Mark noted, it it is the moral imperative of the U.S. military to do so, are people concerned about a possible asymmetry of, you know, if we're against a capable adversary um, who might not necessarily have the same respect for international humanitarian law. Is that a point that's being raised? It is, but it's, I don't think it's a major point. I don't hear a lot of people uh, talking about that. I think, again, those people who are um, kind of called on to actually do this, you know, involved in the targeting process and the planning process, they know that we're, we're going to be faced with that situation. We're likely going to be in a conflict with an adversary that does not have the same respect uh, for civilian casualties, human rights, and also probably doesn't have the same capabilities to be able to put against that to try to reduce those. And so, you know, there are some who are concerned about it, but I, again, I think it's a minority. Yeah. And I don't think that our standard should be the enemy's standard, right? I don't think if we're in a conflict with Russia, uh, we should say, hey, because the Russians uh, are are bad at uh, protecting civilians and, in fact, are are actively targeting civilians, that that then opens that up for us. I mean, one, it's, you know, it's a violation of, of the Geneva Conventions. But importantly, we shouldn't look to somebody else for establishing the standards of how the United States military should operate. And, you know, we should be held to a higher standard. I, I think that that's an important aspect. And the kind of work that Todd has done in his career is just exemplary of of all of the different steps that the U.S. military takes to make sure that they conduct operations in the right way. Now, yes, there have been problems with civilian casualties in military operations, and, and hopefully this policy will, will change that. Now, Mark, I think that's a, that's a great point because, you know, at least, you know, even go, in 2006, I remember hearing people saying, you know, why, why do we care about how we treat you know, Al-Qaeda detainees, uh, you know, we know what they would do to us if we were captured. And my thought was always, well, shouldn't we want to be the best version of ourselves and not compare us to somebody who is, uh, you know, acting in that way? Uh, and I think that's a really important point, Mark. Yeah. 
Um, so I kind of want to move us into a different reaction to the Defense Department's plan. In a Responsible Statecraft article on August 31st, Yale professor Samuel Moyne argued that the DOD's plan, quote unquote, merely humanizes endless war. And further, he says that the new protocols seeking to make U.S. military operations more ethical and compassionate have the awkward effect of legitimizing them. So very much a criticism on the other end of the spectrum. I want to know, is this a productive argument and how do you respond to it? Mark, we'll start with you. Well, this former targeting professional really found that argument to be just completely unhelpful. I don't see this as a zero-sum game. Why can't we simultaneously promote peace and improve civilian protection? You know, Moyne's argument was that, well, you know, if there's, there's going to be war, so people are going to die. And if you're trying to uh, protect civilians and make, make war more palatable, more easy, uh, less deadly... Uh, then uh, war is going to be something that that is more attractive. And I just, I, I don't see it uh, that way at all. And I actually look to comments made by by my mentor, Larry Lewis, Dr. Larry Lewis at Center for Naval Analysis, who's really the godfather of civilian harm mitigation, uh, who's worked on this issue for, for decades and has conducted uh, investigations into almost every single incident of, of civilian harm conducted by the U.S. military. And, and, you know, he raised the issue of just the existence of the Geneva Conventions. So why do we even have the Geneva Conventions if they don't do everything, right? So, the, the, so Moyne's kind of putting this idea forward that if you can't do it all, why do anything? And if we, we have, we've created the Geneva Conventions not to, to humanize war, not to make war easier, uh, but to protect civilians and, and, and deal with that humanity uh, or lack of humanity in warfare, and to try to uh, make it so that people are not unduly harmed in conflict. And I really think, I think we can do both. I think as Moyne states, we need to promote peace. This plan is a process plan, right? It deals with the process of targeting and the process of harming civilians. It doesn't deal with the underlying issue of war, right? And, and, and the U.S., relying on on combat to solve certain problems you know that's 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 certainly a, a valid argument but just because it doesn't deal specifically with one problem doesn't mean we can't deal with another problem right the, the issue of improving civilian protection so while I understand where where Moyne is coming from I don't think that it's a one or the other yeah Todd do you have anything to add to that Yes. I mean, I, when I read his argument, uh, it made me think of the discussion on the um, connection or relationship between use ad bellum and use in bellum, right? So the law on when a state may use force that we have today, largely based on, you know, the post-UN charter world that we live in, lays out, you know, a very restricted, a couple of restricted areas when a state may use force. When a state violates that and uses force illegally, we don't then say, well, the victim state now is, you know, they are free to respond in whatever manner they want. No, we still have to comply then with the use in bellow or the law of armed conflict. Again, to try to lessen the impact on civilians, on the wounded, on those that are captured. And so I think international law has always kind of recognized that what you're really talking about are two different things. The decision to use force in the first place and then how we conduct ourselves once that decision has been made. And I would say, you know, again, speaking from somebody who was, um, you know, 
never in that kind of decision-making level of deciding when we should use force, you know, that is something that, that um, I think is, you know, those two different communities are, are fairly separate. And I don't think those deciding to use force probably think as much about, you know, the impact once that decision has been made as, as we think they might. We are just about at time, but I want to end with a note looking forward. Will one of you walk us through what's the timeline and can we expect this plan to be realized when the actual policy is due? Or I guess, what should we be watching for next? So the when the Chimrap came out, uh, that started a 90-day clock. Uh, the 90-day clock is now running. Uh, within the next 90 days, uh, that now the, the DOTI, the Department of Defense Instruction, which is the actual policy that will move this plan forward and actually cement this plan into the, the ground of the Pentagon, has to be moved forward by Secretary Austin within the next 90 days. Once that happens, uh, then it'll be policy, and that's when the heavy lifting occurs. But simultaneously, Congress is putting money aside for this. Uh, the, the most recent NDAA has put aside money for, for example, the the center of excellence and other civilian harm mitigation issues that are reflected in the plan. And so once the DOTI comes out within the next 90 days, uh, then we can begin to see implementation. Uh, the plan puts forward a very aggressive implementation plan up to FY25. I think from the NGO perspective, we're, we're hoping that the DOD can get this thing moving as rapidly as possible and that Congress will have effective oversight over it so that if there is uh, some kind of change in the next election, uh, that it will not be removed uh, just by, by political fiat, because this is something that is so desperately needed. So the clock is now ticking, and we just really need to wait for the policy to come out before implementation can begin. Once it's implemented, uh, we will see it go out to the COCOMs, but they're not stopping there. They're not just resting back and waiting. Uh, I've already been uh, working with, for example, AFRICOM and, and Indopaycom, as they have come to, to me and asked for uh, how, how to get standard operating procedures, what kind of things do they need to, to think about as they move forward with the implementation of this plan at some point in the future. But also our allies are looking at this very closely. So I was able to brief a couple of weeks ago the Dutch uh, Minister of Defense, and she was very interested. Her first questions were actually about how this, the, the, the DOTI, because at that time the plan hadn't yet come out, how it was going to affect the, the Dutch military. And so a number of our NATO allies and others are thinking about how this U.S. plan is going to affect its allies. And on top of that, the U.N. is now looking at applying civilian harm mitigation to blue helmets. And to that end, I'm going to be traveling next week to Entebbe, Uganda, for a, uh, a meeting with a variety of folks from the Office of Military Affairs in the U.N., and a number of the peacekeeping missions to see how the United Nations can take on some aspects of this U.S. action plan. So it, it, it's going to have a far-reaching effect into more than just the, the U.S. military. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that it's going to mean that, that civilian protection is, is improved in the future. Unfortunately, we will have to end it there. This has been Mark Garlasco and Todd Huntley on the Pentagon's new plan to mitigate civilian harm. Mark and Todd, thank you both so much for coming on today. Thank you, Tia. Hey, thanks very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.